coming from the American side, you understand the perspective of cannabis and how quickly it could go. You understand the population and population density and dynamics within Europe to predict mm-hmm. what the market could be. So we, we went here for that wave, but we thought it was going to come much sooner than it did. Merrill Lynch to marijuana, fusing profit with purpose. After a successful start to his career on Wall Street, derivatives trader Leo Kotlier was in search of a more meaningful way to apply his unique skill set. And unsurprisingly, he found it in cannabis. Fast forward 10 years and he's at the helm of Amsterdam-based strategy and sustainability consultancy, De Warrior. Excellent. Well, welcome to the show, Leo. Great to have you on. If you could just start by telling those of us out there who don't know you, who you are and what you're about, that'd be great. And we'll uh, crack on from there. Hey, Dave, thanks for thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, my name is Leo Kotler. I'm the founder and current president of DeWarrior Unlimited. Uh, we are a Dutch-based uh, regenerative management consulting company focused on the cannabis and hemp industry. We've been incorporated here in the Netherlands for just over four years. Uh, And that's when um, I came over from the United States where we started making those inroads starting from about 2013 and 2014 uh, when Colorado and Washington State started legalizing. So it's been a little bit of a trip coming from the East Coast to the U.S., uh, then to Spain and trying to understand how the scene is there and then migrating to the Netherlands, which has been uh, really fertile ground for the sort of work that we do and the sort of attitude that we we bring to this space. Absolutely. And, and again, it might be a daft question to ask why the Netherlands if you're working in cannabis. But again, that's that's a preconception I think we can all uh, we can all detect. But what was it that sort of led you to the cannabis sector in itself? Because I believe you used to work on Wall Street. Again, I don't know if you want to put it, you know, you're working for demand, but <laughs> but not quite. Well, but tell us, it's an interesting story. Yeah, I think... I think people learn a lot from from the man. The man becomes the man because of institutional scalability and efficiencies of that scalability. So I think having the opportunity to learn the ins and out of that in a place like New York and a bulge bracket firm was completely invaluable. Um, you're absolutely right. I, you know, academically, I was trained as an economist, um, macroeconomist specifically and came out of university and started at Morgan Stanley. Was very kind of fortunate and, you know, now I I think it's some sort of divine coincidence, but my internship into Morgan Stanley, my senior year of of uni, happened to do with compliance with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002. And if anyone, and I mean, everyone would know nothing about this, but essentially that was a result of a bunch of pension plans going bust in the early 2000s and corporate scandals such as Enron and Amaranth and all these kind of shady deals that blew up in a lot of pension plans faces. And Morgan Stanley had a deadline to comply with some of those initiatives. 
And they needed a class of interns to come in and essentially data entry certain paper stacks of documents regarding to the governance and contractual obligations of these clients into an auditable, traceable compliance system, right? So my first four months in Wall Street was literally carting a cart from the warehouse with stacks of boxes of documents for Fortune 500 companies and hedge funds from around the world and entering data into a system. We then figured out that this Sarbanes-Oxley Act part was essentially the G part of what's now called ESG. So I turned out to, to kind of land at the front lines of the development of ESG back in 2005 uh, in my first entry on Wall Street. Risk management wasn't exactly my thing. I had some amazing assignments where I got to go to Hungary and set up a team and hire about 17 brilliant, absolutely wonderful people and manage them and integrate them into the Morgan Stanley risk management framework. But eventually I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do the grind without the glamour. And um, I transferred over to the derivative sales desk, which I thought was anything that's called derivatives is like special forces on Wall Street. Okay. And I spent the, the next 11 years in the derivative space working with pension plans, endowments, and foundations, kind of developing ways to invest and strategically invest while keeping the frameworks of, you know, what we now call ESG. And ESG is environmental, social, and governance. Is that right? Correct. Correct. Okay, right. Well yeah. done, okay. and, and back when we were doing it and yeah. doing the filters for that, let's be honest, it's mostly G with a little bit of S with barely anything in E. And that's the interesting part that coming into cannabis, the focus has to be reframed a bit. Mm-hmm. And you, you asked about the transition from Wall Street to cannabis specifically. So even, even the Delta Force of, of Wall Street, which was the derivatives desk, was, I mean, not fulfilling to say the least, but not, not engaging, to be honest. Um, and right around 2013, I got an offer to go from Morgan Stanley to Merrill Lynch, And I was entertaining it as an exit offer, taking a three-year assignment, getting paid to do something that I already know how how to Mm -hmm. do at Mm -hmm. a bank that's slightly less respectable than the one that I'm in. So I get the coast and do some things on the side. Yeah, that that was yeah, yeah. the the intention. Mm-hmm. The on the side piece was supposed to be producing techno music. It, it wasn't supposed to be cannabis consulting. But as I'm going through this transition from one firm to to another, they grant me this beautiful garden leave that I literally can't do anything. I can't work. Yeah. And I get paid to hang out. So I fulfill my lifelong dream of becoming a ski bum. And I okay. went from mountain to mountain, just skiing my, my favorite peaks. And there's something about mountains that you get to clo- get closer to some sort of truth, at least for me. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's the lack of oxygen or just the proximity to the heavens. But whatever it may be, I was starting to get these feelings like this move to Merrill Lynch is like, I know it's temporary, but I don't even want to do that necessarily. 
Mm. Um, and I started looking around, reading what kind of industries can benefit from institutional capital experience, institutional risk management experience, and understanding of highly regulated frameworks that essentially will only become more complicated as regulation increases. And at that mm -hmm. time, what was in the news is Colorado and Washington State going full adult use legalization. Mm -hmm. um, and having been exposed to cannabis since my teenage years and understanding the benefit that it could have uh, on a medicinal level, on a social level, as a replacement for opiates, as a replacement for alcohol even, um, I really felt positive about the movement that was starting to generate in the United States. During that garden leave, I made a few phone calls. I quickly realized who in my network was already in that industry, reached out to a dear friend named Oleg uh, in New York City, and the rest was, was, was history. So I started mm -hmm. my job at Merrill Lynch, but I also started a part-time CFO position of a company called Magic Within, which mm -hmm. uh, is now essentially a, a, a CBD formulation com company called Lock and Key Remedies that exists to this okay. day. So from 2014, 2013, that area to when I left Wall Street in 2016, it was literally living a double life. I was on the yeah. trade floor <laughs> during the day and I was running these cannabis startups or at least the financial and strategy portion of them during mm -hmm. nights and weekends. Um, and Was there a conflict of interest ever? Did they ever go... What, what you, you know, we, we, yeah. we definitely, so we had to submit conflict of interest documentation uh, for any stakeholder. And I did submit that I was a non-active director in like a, a CBD company. Okay. So, so, that, that so, was so I did declare it. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I well, didn't, I didn't clarify it further. Yeah. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. But, um, I mean, so, I mean, and then from there, presumably it was, you just gotten more and more into the the cannabis side of things and saw the opportunity to to move into that full time. But how long did it kind of take of kind of, I guess, side gigging for want of a better term to kind of get into so sort of what you're doing now? I, I quit Wall Street in September of 2016. So from that moment on, it, it was full flight. And the interesting thing is, is, we completely underestimated how much actual wind you need you need under your wings to fly so mm -hmm. i i come out of this very cushy 12-year career on wall street every two weeks there's a paycheck coming in every year there's a bonus that no matter how good or bad it is it's called a bonus for for a reason you didn't have it the day before you have it now right mm -hmm. and then it's the same amount of rent, the same amount of everything is due, but that customer base in cannabis back in 2016 on the East Coast was not happening. Mm. So we made a decision to essentially move to Europe to, to start that brand because the experience we had on, on, on the East Coast, the contacts we had in Oregon and, and uh, uh, Colorado allowed us to see the opportunity, but that opportunity was too premature for the East right. Coast. 
And there's no way I was going to move to the West Coast. Like if you're a New Yorker, you're just like, see you later. I'm either going to Europe or I'm staying in New York. Right. No way I'm moving to, to Denver or Seattle. It's just, it's just not happening. Okay. Okay. Right. So uh, and I guess they kind of maturish markets themselves. And I guess, well, just in the past year alone, the, the progress that's been made this side of the Atlantic seems to be phenomenal. And I guess that's you sort of riding that wave, I guess, a little bit. I, I was on the board sitting, waiting for that wave for about two, two and a half, three years. Wow. And I, I think coming from the American side, you understand the perspective of cannabis and how quickly it could go. You understand the population and population density and dynamics within Europe to predict mm-hmm. what the market could be. So we, we went here for that wave, but we thought it was going to come much sooner than it did. Like even mm-hmm. if we're talking about the Dutch experiment, which we could get into a little bit if mm-hmm. you and your audience aren't familiar, I mean, it's, it's two years delayed and it very well could be three years delayed. Right. Mm-hmm. And all that for a consulting co- company is a bleed rate, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. immature businesses well, yeah. that aren't able to scale, that aren't able to require the services that we offer. So it, it becomes that kind of we're ready, but is the industry actually here? And do you feel like now is the time to be, you know, your time has sort of come to be able to do the work that you want to do, you wanted to do two, three years ago? 100%. Yeah. And um, I mean, if it wasn't for for COVID, to to be frank, there probably would have been an even earlier uh, start. Mm-hmm. But I would say 2021 was a really great year um, for European cannabis. I think there's some major deals that that were done and the intention was shown by multiple jurisdictions, both on the medical side and the adult use side to actually push this process forward. Um, Mm -hmm. And that momentum generated an interest from North America, generated an interest from investors. Now we're coming into another consolidation period but that being said, the seeds have been planted of the possibility of what this mm-hmm. industry could be and kind of the proper players who have ridden those waves a few times to show the longevity that they're actually there and present and able to carry this forward. And do you think, I mean, it's not just a case of American or Canadian or North American, really, I should say, cannabis companies trying to get a foothold here. Do you think there's there's genuinely there's companies based in Europe and elsewhere that are really sort of pushing that agenda forward? Do you think it's a mixture of both? Do you, what do, how do you see it sort of stacking up in that respect? Um, I see the institutionalization um, and the kind of the corporatization from the investment side from the internal prioritization and structuring side to the funding side, I see that being heavily influenced from Canada. But in terms of organic, locally grown um, European companies that are doing great work, I think there there's a number of them. And I could name, you know, examples in almost every jurisdiction. I mean, we're, we're proud... Um, you know, right right now, we're really excited about one of our clients from northern Macedonia. Um, and to our understanding, they're the only uh, organic biodynamic cultivator 
right? Providing flour to major markets such as Germany, right? And mm -hmm. to us, it's, you know, this sustainability side has so many, so many kind of angles that are worth mentioning, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And organic and biodynamic is not just a hippie buzzword to charge, you know, 30% more at your local grocery store when it comes to cannabis. Mm -hmm. It's a growing method that's economically more viable. So it's better for cost of goods sold, which means that efficiency could be passed through the patient and given them medicine at a lower price point. Mm -hmm. It by the nature of how it's grown it has more terpenes so there's a greater entourage uh, effect and onslaught from that plant mm -hmm. by the nature of how it's grown it has a lower microbial load so there's natural plant resiliency that creates a lower microbiology testing when you actually put your product to market so doing things right and in accordance with laws of nature create a win-win-win right for the patient for the plant and for the planet itself absolutely and i think more a sort of i mean even to sort of go back a bit and sort of say you know a legitimacy level in terms of well the problem with cannabis being illegal or you know in many countries is the fact that you know if you're relying on street cannabis you, you can't prove the quality you don't know where you're getting it from and even if you are taking it for medicinal purposes which which i guess a lot of people are even if they don't realize they are it's you know you don't know what you're getting and you know there's no quality there's nothing you know and all of that i mean that's the benefit of one of the huge benefits of there being a legal medical or recreational market is that you can ensure these practices are put in place which is which is what i hear more and more i think but in terms of when you're working with a company like you mentioned your client in uh, north macedonia what, what point are you kind of brought in and you know what is it you're telling them about how to you mentioned about sustainability and sort of advising them on that and the practice what, what is it at what point will they come to you and what will you kind of seek to do essentially just to kind of break it down a bit more well, we, we brand ourselves as an CETA IPO management consulting company. Mm. So we could start at the, uh, the process, any place that a client chooses. We've done licensing. So meaning there's an investor who wants to own a license in Greece mm. or Macedonia or Malta, and they want to put together the whole project plan and the team and everything and the perspectives and the pro forma, right? And it becomes... Mm an iterative process of helping them connect to the right suppliers, helping them draft the proper SOPs, guiding them through past pitfalls where certain things may be acceptable, but would be harder to pass some sort of an audit once it's time for that. But we could also be brought in at the very end, right? So we have clients who are already um, multinationals, or MSOs who are looking to IPO, who are looking for that late stage funding where it's going to be institutional capital and are looking for us to assess their current ESG metrics to frame it in a, in a language that can be used for internal communication to remediate issues that were um, found out and for external co uh, communications to satisfy various requirements in mm. conjunction with that ESG. So for, for example, the TCFD or the task force for financial disclosure for climate change, um, certain public listings now will require a TCFD 
disclosure. So the warrior could be brought in at the very last step to do an mm -hmm. assessment and create that a report, or we could do a business development project that's completely not related to ESG, but show a customer in a particular way that they're doing something in a sustainable way and mm -hmm. find a market for them under the ESG kind of overall uh, project management umbrella. So any step mm -hmm. that we, we kind of parachute into we still frame our deliverables, not only from the point of view of a traditional management consulting company, but also how to position that climate, client with regards to ESG, both internally and externally. As, yeah. as, as, yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, in terms of ESG, in terms of like getting investors on board, in terms of compliance, I mean, just how important is it? I mean, it's not something... I mean, other than speaking with yourself, I've heard a great deal about, if I'm honest, I mean, obviously there are sort of sustainability concerns and it's clear to me that a lot of people starting cannabis companies are really keen to, you know, build the type of business industry as, as a whole that, you know, has been lacking in other areas, you know, for example, that, you know, and it's almost like for so in so many different ways, cannabis is, is a sort of reset button for businesses to operate a lot more ethically. But I guess to what extent do you feel like all of those things are, and not just the kind of necessity, but, you know, there's a compliance aspect attached to it, or there's a kind of investors or investors need to see this, this sort of information in order to feel confident in what they're putting their money in. I mean, if you could just expand on that a bit more, because that's something I don't really understand. Absolutely. I, I think there's, um, there's a need to separate the importance of ESG into the ideological and the regulatory compliance, right? So let, let's put the ideological yeah. aside because I yeah. think we all un, mm. un, understand that aspect of it. But from a compliance point of view, you know, coming from the institutional capital world, I understand that the needle in industries be, begins to move when institutional capital starts to come in. And the requirements for sticky capital, meaning capital that's not fickle, that's in it for the long run, that sees the value of something, not for the next two years, for the next 10 years, for the next 20 years, next 30 years, it's pension plan money, right? And Canada itself, if you look at the makeup of their financial markets, if you look at their equity base, most of the equities in terms of capitalization are owned by public sector pensions, plus a case de depot, plus Mont de, de Quebec in Quebec, uh, Ontario Teachers and Canada Pension Plan Investment Board in Ontario, um, Alberta Investment Management Company in Alberta, province mm -hmm. of British Columbia. Those pension plans own the lion's share of equities in Canada, right? So if we're looking at institutional capital that starts to fuel expansion, you need to look at institutional requirements that are already present for investments in general. Three quarters of all assets under management, depending on which metrics you use, are currently managed under some sort of ESG umbrella. Granted, it's complete nonsense and it's greenwashing, and we could talk about that for days and read, write books okay. on that subject. But nonetheless, it's officially three quarters of the world's assets are managed under some sort of ESG framework. Pension plans and sticky capital have been adhering to these frameworks for the longest. They're the deepest rooted in those um, kind of uh, 
guidelines and variables and are more likely to adhere to them for the right reasons, namely that the state of the pension of a teacher in Ontario in 20 years depends on this investment being sound. It's a pretty simple framework. So it's kind of doing things by the book in order to kind of attract that sort of capital. So again, like you say, exactly. for whatever reason they've stipulated ESG is a is a is a consideration or a concern, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it's there. You know, the reason why may not be you know the most wholesome, but it's there, and that's progress, and that you know is a requirement for how you know investment managers are going to be handling this money and putting it through. But it's interesting. I mean, is that I mean, I don't know if that was a hypothetical case you were just quoting there, but I mean, the idea that, you know, teacher funds in Canada are kind of being plowed into cannabis investments is... Uh, it's, I mean, it's, a, it's a simple, and I wouldn't even call it plowed into, I would look at it as a simple um, kind of glance at the caps t tables of publicly listed companies. Mm. And when you have, let's call it, and, and I don't know the exact numbers now, but at one point, I think Ontario teachers managed about 250 billion Canadian dollars worth of assets. And mm. they're largely, they, are, they need to invest a portion of that in the Canadian public equities market. They can't own majority stakes in these companies. So when you start to spread that amount of money around in low level capitalized markets, some of it has to land in alternative, um, alternative equities that are part of the indices, right? So even if you're included in the TSC 60, which is essentially the top 60 capitalized stocks in Canada, so if like you're a cannabis exchange, yeah. 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 So if you're okay. included in that index and a pension plan will own X amount of TSC 60 futures and it, it will be in the hundreds of millions, if not billions. So if you own that much and it's part of that index, you're going to passively invest in cannabis co companies. Wow. I did not know that. That's a, no, that's, that's a really fascinating insight. I mean, again, from the financial perspective, I mean, understanding how that all works is, you know, something I completely have no idea about, really. But I mean, that. But let's but let's let's yeah, bring yeah, yeah. It, let's bring it real down to the yeah. micro level. There's mm. one of the best um, kind of venture early stage private equity funds in the cannabis space happens to be located in London called Artemis Growth, mm -hmm. and Artemis has an ESG mandate. So when they take on investments, they do have an ESG protocol that they take their companies through. And they have mm -hmm. a very strong ideological base for doing so, but they're also positioning themselves for future exits and mm -hmm. future requirements and understanding that that is a necessity and that necessity will only grow as we mm -hmm. progress in this kind of day and age. So really a big part of what you do is from an, I guess, a broader industry perspective is bringing that level of legitimacy and, uh, you know, to cannabis companies in order that they can attract the sort of capital they need to grow. That's absolutely true. Uh, we frame ourselves very often as experts in communications who are able to translate the language of cannabis from the roots to the suits. Mm, no, that's really cool. That's really cool. So, I mean, in terms of the sort of, I mean, you know, obviously naming names, I'm not sure how, if you can or not, but thinking about the, the types of business, businesses you're working with, 
Um, is it just a really broad sweep of kind of like, I guess, everything from ancillary businesses to kind of, you know, people growing to all of that to all, yeah, how, the, how does that kind of stack up in terms of so the companies we, you work with? We, we have various, um, various kind of levels of engagements. We're part of a consortium that just won um, an ESG uh, bid with Cureleaf, and that's going to be an 18-month project and a deep dive into how to take Cureleaf to the next level and solve some of their most pressing issues. Um, but what we also really love are the deep dive projects that we completely didn't anticipate, but that end up having a really unique ESG angle that we then get excited about and it becomes a mission to kind of go further and further. And I'll give you a current um, issue that we are mm. faced with a lot in quite a few jurisdictions, believe it or not, uh, is microbiology. So the final cured, dried, ready to package and send product is failing the microbiology levels necessary for distribution. And that problem can be solved in various ways. It could be solved as a remediation, meaning you could put that flower through a process to then remediate the microbial contamination and distribute that flower. You could recommend a change in SOPs and change of processes and change of substrates to the cultivator that starts the solution you know, downstream as well but that's longer and costlier and you still have a problem where you have a ton of cannabis that's contaminated and you're either going to throw it out or you're going to remediate it and sell it. So mm. when mm. we did this deep dive, we realized that there are certain LPs who literally have to put their cannabis flower on a plane, fly it 1,500 miles away to get it irradiated at an industrial irradiation facility at anywhere between 10,000 gray units and 30,000 gray units of, of radiation, then put back on a plane and flown back to the facility for distribution. So we found a solution that we believe mm. to be the most sophisticated at the time, and it's a client called RadSource, and they have an X-ray irradiator. And this machine has the capability to do what these E-beam or gamma industrial facilities can, can, can do, meaning remediate 99.9% .9 of the product, but do it at 2,500 gray units and do it at your location. So all of a sudden you save the trip and the carbon impact of your cannabis having to go to a third party location. You save the energy needed to blast instead of, you know, 2,500 gray units to 10,000 gray units. And you also preserve the product because if there's less uh, radiation imposed on it, the degradation of terpenes, the um, humidity, it's going to be preserved in a completely different way. So all of a sudden we found this solution and we're very excited about it. But it doesn't mean that we're not equally excited or more excited about talking to someone, well, 
why why is your uh, crop contaminated? Let's think mm. about what your your processes. At what level does it become contaminated? Is it a mm -hmm. process in your dry room? Is it a process in your curing? Is it a process of the transfer from the cultivation facility into the post harvest facility? Somewhere there's something that would reveal a truth, and our goal is still to lower the microbial load versus just say, ah, you know what? produce the shittiest weed you can we got a machine that'll fix it no matter what right so we mm -hmm. found the solution that we're very passionate about and rat mm -hmm. source is that solution and every place should have a risk management for contaminated plants right there should be a risk management plan to make sure that you still sell your crop however we still want to talk about why is your crop contaminated <laughs> Wow. So it really good. I mean, again, it's like every aspect of kind of like a business process analysis, it sounds like the sort of thing we we, tr we try to bring a quantitative focus to every decision and empower our clients to make a decision based on data right mm -hmm. because we may have an opinion but unless we prove it in a scientific way mm -hmm. it, it's really still anecdotal and when you're talking about a medical grade product going to serve patients there, there's no room for error for that sort of approach. So in terms of the sort of, I guess, the clients you're working with in terms of where they're based, are they a lot of North American companies importing into Europe as much as anything else? Because again, thinking about my experience as a, a slightly different topic, I guess, um, as a medical cannabis patient here in the UK, you nothing can be, you can grow it here, but you can't sell it here in the same way. You have to import it, have it imported from Germany. So what I get is like a Canadian brand cannabis that comes in a bottle from Germany. And again, it's that kind of supply chain, I'm guessing you're talking about. So you're looking at finding ways to navigate those sort of supply chains in the right way, using the right processes in a way that's both, you know, guarantees the quality of the product and, you know, is cost effective and is compliant. And I guess you're never going to be short of business. So <laughs> you can pursue that route for, for, for now, right? Yeah. And I don't know whether, whether it's my East coast accent or, my, you know, the original cannabis Rolodex that I came to Europe with, but we are finding more resonance with North American clients who are looking to do business in in Europe or explore business in in Europe, um, but we also have you know quite a few clients based in in Europe that coincidentally or not coincidentally are are headed by uh, English speaking CEOs and COOs. So I definitely I think there there is a language element to cannabis, and I think if you see the consulting opportunities in the Iberian Peninsula. They're mm. typically captured uh, by locals, but we, we do have a good base here in the Netherlands from North America. And, you know, our chief operating officer um, is Greek ethnically uh, and based out of Brussels. So we, we have a great network um, in Greece and northern Macedonia as well. Cool. So, um, yeah, just to sort of change slightly, just thinking about what markets are you kind of excited about next, and particularly in in Europe? Because, I mean, you know, Germany opening up soon. I mean, and you mentioned the Dutch experiment, which I'll ask you to explain in a sec. Cause, uh, and then, you know, looking at Malta, looking at Luxembourg, looking at, you know, there's varying degrees of sort of 
not just legalization, but criminalization. It's not sort of one blanket kind of, uh, you know, we're going to make it all legal now. That seems to be very much a rarity, but it's happening. But within that, what are you, what are you kind of excited about in terms of where things are progressing and, you know, the opportunity, I guess? I think it's impossible to ignore the opportunity and the excitement that Germany offers. Um, it will become depending on how quick Mexico gets its act uh, together, but Germany will become the biggest uh, single market uh, the moment it legalizes, provided mm. Mexico doesn't beat them to the punch. Um, right. So in terms of adult use, it's, it's really all in Germany. I think Luxembourg, uh, I was following those developments very closely when they're still in draft legislature, and it really appeared it was going to be much quicker and much better defined. Uh, so far, it, it's been a pretty major disappointment, and I don't see that as any sort of beacon of freedom when it comes to cannabis. I think it's a small enough place and controlled enough place where they know the boundaries is, uh, um, of this experiment won't um, won't change things drastically. It's kind of a, a status quo sort of uh, positioning. You think but it's the I, same in Switzerland too? No, no. Switzerland is its own beast. Um, and I actually like this, the, the structure of the Swiss trials. Um, I think, I hope uh, the Swiss authorities are going to share the data that comes out of it because the patients that are going to be participating in these uh, experiments, and I'm, I'm still going to call them patients, even though it's an adult use experiment, because about 60% of adult use users self-identify as using it for medicinal purposes. So those 5,000 patients in each canton that are going to be participating are going to be regularly monitored for their health and, and well-being. As far as I know, that includes biometric markers, but also psychological and kind of social markers. And I really hope that this data coming from various cantons across Switzerland can be compiled into something unbiased and definitive to prove the efficacy of cannabis. Very cool. Very cool. So I, I did interrupt you. What was it you were going to mention previously? I can't remember. I think we're going to ask about the Dutch experiment. That was it. Oh, the, oh that's right. Uh, yeah. So uh, many people don't know, but cannabis per, per se is not legal in the Netherlands. Uh, coffee shops are allowed to exist under license. There are 570 coffee shops total. They're allowed to have no more than 500 grams present on them at any given time. And they're not allowed to sell more than five grams at a time to any single person. How they get the product, the 500 grams into the coffee shop, where that product is stored, where that product is grown, all of those steps are illegal and punishable by law. So a few years ago, the Dutch government says there's, you know, there's a legalization wave ha happening. Bedrocan is the number one European provider of medical cannabis. We have expertise in this field. Let's lead this conversation and conduct an experiment. And they chose a subset essentially of the Netherlands, which is largely 
provincial, so no big cities were included. In the final round, they included Utrecht, which I think only adds about 11 coffee shops to the experiment. So mm -hmm. anywhere between 79 and 90 coffee shops out of 570 are going to be participating. They had an application process uh, that was very short notice, even though everyone knew it was coming, the actual details of it were published very late. So if you didn't have your act together, it was very difficult to file an application. There's approximately 150 applications filed. Of those, 49 were chosen as worthy to go into a lottery stage where everyone is essentially equal and out of a hat, 10 names were, were drawn who now have a cultivation license to uh, produce, um, package, and distribute cannabis to the 79 participating coffee shops. Um, and it's a pretty serious thing because we actually know the, the demand metrics because those coffee shops exist. We know their customer base. We know how much they're selling. So the government predicted each one of these 10 licenses needs to have 6,500 kilos worth of dry flour supply per year. And that's a very serious number. It's a number you won't find in many cultivation facilities in Europe that are currently operating on an industrial medical scale. So that immediately presents a whole slew of issues and challenges and obstacles. So it's been a very interesting couple, mm. couple of years. But when it actually gets going, when we have that first sale, when we have the first harvest, I hope it's going to be uh, first quarter 2023 with the first sale coming in uh, the second quarter. But at this time, I'm, I'm not going to keep my mm. hopes up on it either. But that's interesting. So again, the impetus for that is the fact that yeah, you can sell it in a coffee shop, but the actual supply chain is 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 black market essentially. Correct. <laughs> Correct. And it's it's currently called the backdoor policy. Right. Okay. But again, that's uh, uh, it's not something that I guess consumers necessarily are concerned about. It's something that. Well, or should they be? What do you think? They, I, I certainly think they, they should be. And as someone who understands this product, I could tell you in Amsterdam, a handful of shops that you can go to and ask the right questions and get a very high quality product. But the overall product on the market is very poor, grown in poor conditions, most likely contaminated um, and possibly trafficked. And that's the, the other part that is, is not spoken about. Everyone thinks, oh, there's probably just backyard uh, shed grows all, all over Holland. Sure, that, that does exist mm -hmm. and very high quality flour is grown here locally, but you shouldn't underestimate the amount that's driven from the Spanish mountains. You shouldn't underestimate the amount that comes in from Albania and sometimes sprayed with synthetic cannabinoids to enhance its effect, right? So mm -hmm. you get essentially CBD uh, flour or some sort of low THC flour grown outdoors, driven all across Europe through the middle of the night and sprayed with syn synthetic Chinese cannabinoids to give people the effect of a THC high. 
And that is a concern on this market. And mm-hmm. for countries so vested in cannabis from the 1970s, there's absolutely no reason why they, that should exist on this market. Yeah. I mean, again, thinking about the UK market a little bit, I mean, you know, there's been a big, well, again, there's been a bit of a media thing around the idea of spice or whatever it is, you know, again, basically taking plant yeah. matter and spraying it with synthetic can cannabinoids and again it just makes you think if there was uh, you know the sort of actually when i was interviewed james smith i had a discussion about it the amount of people who could benefit from from medical cannabis alone you know i think you put it as something like you know a third of the population probably could if they knew about it because the alternative is just so dire you know to kind of you know you don't know where you, you know if, unless you can guarantee the the provenance the quality all of that then you're kind of playing with fire a bit and that's potentially you know culturally why it feeds into this whole negative stigma or as that has perpetuated for so long and i mean arguably there's that plays a part in it and it's not the be all and end all but you know it, it's it's part of why you know it's like what how do you mean it can cure anxiety what does it mean that you know it can you can use not cure anxiety but you know use as a treatment for it or what the, you know and then people just say well when i've had it i've just freaked out and had a completely mm-hmm. bad experience and there could be a number of reasons for that, but it doesn't help when, you know, the sort of supply chain is, well, illicit to that extent because you don't, there's nothing regulating it more so than it being illegal for its own sake, you know? And, that's- and I, I think, you know, James is absolutely right, but I think that one third number could come up as high as 100% if we're talking about a replacement product for something like alcohol. And I'm not saying a replacement product from this say a point of view of, you know, alcohol doesn't need to exist, but it can coexist in a way that cannabis currently doesn't, right? And once you have fast acting water soluble THC with a fast onset mode of delivery, meaning you don't have to wait a half hour for your first can of drink to kick in, you're going to prefer that over your your beer. It's going to be lower calorie. It's going to be a cleaner, uplifting feeling. And you're certainly going to feel better the next day having consumed it. So I, I'm, I'm seeing the trends, you know, now they're not very encouraging for a country like Canada. The, the beverage market and the edibles market is really stagnant. But I think that has to do more with the advertising and the marketing and the social aspect of kind of that bringing, bridging that equivalency mm. between a soft alcohol beverage and a 2.5 to 5 milligram THC beverage. And it's interesting. I mean, I was speaking to someone actually when, when we met at ICBC in Boston. I was speaking to someone there and well, she was a British lady who's sister was living in california she said you know the idea that you can go there and go out for dinner call someone up and you know have them deliver you know essentially gummies or whatever it is to your table at at a restaurant and she said we had a it was eight of us having dinner we had one bottle of wine because gummies kind of did it Mm -hmm. did the rest and i was like wow you know again it's but again that sort of scenario here well here in the uk at least i guess probably for a lot of europe seems so distant right now it's it's hard to kind of think well could this be a thing i mean and and i i think i think it is somewhat distant it's not coming in the next 18 months to to the uk but from our point point of view i think um 
consulting with clients who are actively part of the science, who are actively developing formulation, we know that the industry is ready for it. And I, I guess we, we're very fortunate that we get to play a little bit of a, like a Nostradamus role. We get to see where the industry could possibly go from the earliest mm -hmm. stages because we're working with these companies, we're helping them get funded, we see them grow. And then as the market opens and develops, there's amazing products that are able to enter the market. And that's both for wellness and medical. Like people think medical is extracts and flour, but there are transdermals, there are sublinguals, there are oromucosal nebulizers. There's all sorts of things that allow the molecules to enter the body and to connect with the body in ways never before possible in the modes of consumption that we normally associate cannabis with. So mm -hmm. this wave of innovation is really going to open those markets for the average consumer, whether it's a patient that is going to pr get the prescription for these modes of delivery and molecules, or whether it's an adult use uh, patient also, um, who will choose to have a low THC drink with a friend instead of puffing on a J, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I, I think that's what I'm interested in seeing, kind of when will that mainstream happen? When will we see it in movies or Netflix shows? And it won't be, hey, did, did you see what happened there? Uh, when it becomes normalized. Absolutely. And... If you have to, again, to wrap up, if you have to put a finger in the air and sort of say, well, when will that be? Maybe this side of the pond. What do you think? Eight to 10 years, maybe? Sooner? I, mean, I, think, it, I, I think Germany, it will happen within the next three years. That's it. And so I, I think... The domino effect from there, maybe. You know, I think this this movement of the new party getting elected after Merkel's kind of very long reign, I think there's a focus on them. There's a spotlight on them. The people are excited about cannabis. So I think there's going to be a lot of products, a lot of innovations. There's going to be interesting things happening in Germany for sure. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm hopeful with uh, I haven't seen the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan's gone over to California. I did. <laughs> I did so you know, that. fingers crossed he comes back and uh, you know if he can get it decriminalized in London. Well, that's you know that's, I that's I think hit. California California may be one of the worst models to to use as an example and to follow. Um, but okay. hopefully he he realizes what to do while while not to do at the same time. Well, that's it. We can only hope, but uh, that's great. But, but thank you so much for joining me, Leo. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, good luck with it all. And uh, yeah, thank we'll you so much, Dave. Soon. It was a All real right. pleasure. Appreciate it. Good stuff. <laughs>